We would like to acknowledge and respect the traditional owners, including the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people, as the original custodians of this land, along with their customs, traditions, and their special relationship with the land. It's Sunday the 4th of September and welcome to The Wind Down, a recap of the week's news produced by Swinburne University's The Standard. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. This episode, I sat down with Ayana Osman to go over some of the week's biggest stories. We chat about the job summit, the floods in Pakistan, and how music can help predict the state of the economy. To start with, uh, the job summit kicked off on Thursday. What is that all about and why does it actually matter? Okay, so it's a bit of an experiment by the Albanese government. So during his um, Albanese election campaign, he promised to bring together business leaders and union leaders and find a way of helping to solve many of the country's biggest economic problems. This summit is pitched as a way of tackling these issues. In his opening address, the Prime Minister called on both unions and business leaders to work together to help the country move forward. We've got a bit under two days. Let's promise each other that we won't spend them playing our greatest hits, rehashing the same arguments or reheating old conflicts. We have not gathered here to dig deeper trenches on the same old battlefields. So we know what the job summit is, but why is it needed? So clearly the last year has been tough in the economy. Inflation has been skyrocketing. The price of many products we use every day is just increasing every day. This problem is made worse by the fact that the wage for most workers have just not kept up. And so, meaning many wholesalers are less well off than they were a year ago. There's also the issue of skilled job shortages across the country. Just last week, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews said that his government will be covering the hex debt of nursing students as the state faces a shortage of nurses. And so against the backdrop of all these issues, the Job Summit has kicked off on Thursday and it aims to help our political and business leaders kind of work together to solve those issues. So it started Thursday. Um, we are recording on the Friday afternoon after, so it's not quite over, but things have come out so far. What have we seen? So one of the biggest pieces of news that came out is that the Peak Business Body and the Australian Council of Trade Unions, also known as the ACTU, have agreed on a few items, three main issues. They outlined the need for paid parental leave to be extended, the need for to set up an authority to oversee the transition away from fossil fuels to clean green energy, as well as the need for skilled migration reform. And they wanted an increase in the number of skilled migrants moving to the country. So on the last item, the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, has announced an increase in the caps of skilled migrants' visas from about 160,000 to 200,000. This change was welcomed by both the Business Bureau of Australia and the Australian Council of Trade Unions. In his opening address, the Prime Minister also an, uh, announced an additional 180,000 free TAFE positions. But in recognition of the urgent challenges facing our nation, we are taking action now with a billion dollar training blitz driven by public TAFE. We want to see more Australians gaining the skills they need to find good jobs in areas of national priority. And I want this to be the beginning, not the end, of the progress that we see on skills and training over the next two days. Mm, those are some pretty incredible numbers. What else have we seen from the federal government uh, so far in the summit? 
So those issues are pretty much agreed upon by both the union leaders and the business leaders. But on a more divisive issue, the government announced that they'll be moving ahead with a multi-employer wage deal. So what that aims to do is allow unions to negotiate across different employers, across the same sector, to um, basically come across an enterprise agreement. So this deal was drafted between, with an agreement between the ACTU and the Small Business Organisation and was announced by the Workplace Relations Minister, Tony Burke. This deal will receive some pushback as the head of the Australian Industry Group said the changes will cause more industrial action across the workforce and will lead to more mass strikes across different sectors. And is that the only pushback we're getting? Has, how has the federal opposition responded to this? Federal opposition leader Peter Dunham refused to attend the summit and warned the deal announced could hurt the economy. Yeah, definitely sounds like there's a lot more turbulence ahead, but it's good to finally have things getting started. Yeah. So on to international news now. Aditi, it's been hard to miss what's happening in Pakistan now, but could you explain quickly, just for people that don't know? Yeah, so, I mean, incredible floods happening in Pakistan. It has been raining since June, and this is a bit earlier than normal, but it's not too far off their regular monsoon season. It's just that the rain has been much heavier than normal, and it's been pretty much unrelenting. There's been no break. Uh, last week, in particular, had the heaviest rainfall um, so far, uh, and that is typical of August, but like I said, it's been heavier than normal, so... It's a bit more than what they expected. The rains have now stopped, but more than one third of Pakistan is underwater at the moment, um, mainly affecting the regions of Sindh and Balochistan. Balochistan in particular is one of the poorest regions um, of the country. Uh, and over 100,130 people have died. That is a conservative number. We don't actually have any definitive numbers because rescue efforts have been so difficult. Um, at the moment, we have 500,000 people in camps after losing their homes. Uh, and the climate minister, Sherry Rahman, says Pakistan is accustomed to monsoon flooding, but not like this. Um, Pakistan is known for its wild weather because of its location and surrounded by mountains on either side. But rainfall in South Asia in general has been particularly bad this year. Yeah. So those are pretty incredible numbers. Do you know what's been done to help people in those disaster zones? So like I said, there have been rescue efforts by both the Pakistani government and NGOs, non-government organisations. Uh, but those have been made harder because the helicopters couldn't lift off because the rain was so heavy. And they did have similarly bad, um, devastating floods in 2010. Obviously, these are much worse. Uh, but they did have bad floods and after which they raised the bridges above the point of the flood water at the time. Uh, but those bridges have now been destroyed <laughs> by the flood water this year. So... A lot of these places have been hard to reach even after the rain has stopped. NGOs have tried to send out rescue boats, but the waters have been too dangerous while the rain was still going, and one incident saw 11 people die after a rescue boat uh, capsized on the Indus River. Release camps have been set up in the safer parts of Sindh um, and around Karachi, which is Pakistan's biggest city, uh, and the military is currently helping to distribute aid in remote areas and evacuate people without homes. Okay, so a bit close to home. What's the Australian government been doing to help out? Well, the Australian government has committed $2 million to humanitarian aid uh, for Pakistan. This is part of a UN appeal for $160 million US dollars in total. Um, advocacy groups aren't happy with this figure, especially because the Pakistani government has estimated the damage will cost about $10 billion US dollars. Uh, so we're not even close. So we've been hearing a lot about natural disasters all around the world. What's the Pakistani government's stance on climate change and are they taking any actions? 
So Pakistan has no net zero goals, uh, but they have committed to cutting 50% of projected emissions by 2030. Um, that is as opposed to, you know, Australia by comparison, which is 43% of the emissions being emitted in 2005. So we're cutting past emissions, they're cutting future emissions. It's also important to note that Pakistan is only responsible for 0.6% of the world's CO2 emissions as of 2020. Australia is responsible for 1.16% and Pakistan has almost 10 times Australia's population. Uh, so here's Minister Rahman uh, again speaking about uh, the effect of climate change in Pakistan. Climate, the, the climate, uh, uh, you know, decade of our reckoning is here and now, Nick. It's not 2050. Uh, uh, you know, that tipping point is absolutely uh, visible to us. Uh, and I think many thresholds are being crossed while uh, global leaders dither over which emissions are good and which are not, uh, it's, it's time to make uh, decisions. Otherwise, they, it won't just be Pakistan. Record heat in spring and summer has also melted glaciers. I haven't been able to mention those yet. Uh, Pakistan actually has the most glaciers in the world outside of the North and South Pole. Uh, so melting glaciers uh, leave Pakistan as one of the countries most vulnerable to climate change at the moment. So what more can be done to help? There's a lot of grassroots action happening in Australia by the Pakistani diaspora. Um, they prepared aid boxes. Some are even preparing to travel to Karachi to help. Um, there are donation pools at the moment organised by UNICEF, uh, the Red Crescent, Humanity and Inclusion and International Medical Corps, which are all global groups. Um, but we also have some local Pakistani nonprofits, um, the Akhidmat Foundation Pakistan, Muslim Aid Pakistan, um, and also Shahid Afridi's foundation. Um, he's a bowler um, in the Pakistani cricket team. The links for all of those will be in the show notes. Okay. For our final story of the evening, Aditi, I've come across this story about how pop culture trends can possibly predict an upcoming downturn. Could you explain a bit further? Yeah, so this was a really interesting one um, that I saw as well. Uh, there was a viral tweet, uh, I guess, that got people interested in this one, uh, which was about how the recent uptake in house music uh, means the recession will be, and I quote, big and nasty. Uh, but economic conditions are actually connected to and often predicted by trends in fashion, film and TV, and especially music. Um, I want to focus on music a little bit for this one. Uh, we've had dance tracks in Beyonce's new album and renaissance and drake has released an entire house album uh which kind of surprised everyone i don't think anyone saw that coming no i definitely didn't see it coming so you can see there's a bit of a trend of uplifting upbeat music at times of economic downturns such as recessions and depressions this time the music question is house music is there a history of this kind of thing happening well, house music in particular um, did come about in the 1980s right on the eve of the 90s um, economic downturn as, as inflation rates were getting really high uh, back in the US. Um, and that set the scene for house being really popular across the mid-90s and then bubble cum pop in the late 90s, uh, which is when the recession hit worst in the US. Uh, but we can see this all the way back in the Great Depression. Uh, swing music started getting popular uh, right on the eve of the Great Depression in the mid to late 1920s. Uh, before that, it was jazz and blues, so much uh, more down-tempo <laughs> compared to swing. But, you know, we don't have to look that far back. The 2008 global financial crisis saw really big kind of club bangers from like Black Eyed Peas, Usher, Britney Spears, um, and we saw the birth of artists like Lady Gaga and Katy Perry. My personal favourite fr song from 2009 uh, in particular is Evacuate the Dance Floor by Cascader. I think I'll have to choose Single Ladies by Beyonce. What do, you what do you think this says about the economy? 
Well, record high inflation rates at the moment, which is what we're seeing, is usually a pretty good indicator of an economic downturn to come. Uh, We've seen the RBA hiking up interest rates in the past few months to repair um, the cost of living issues um, and to slow economic spending. Uh, The IMF, International Monetary Foundation, has warned for a global recession. Um, We have yet to see how that will impact Australia. We don't actually know yet. Uh, Some experts have said that it might not. We did escape the 2008 global financial crisis, mainly due to the mining boom and the Labor government's measures to prevent economic disaster. It really depends on what the current government does. Okay. I guess we might have a recession around the corner, but at least we'll have some upbeat music to dance to it. Yeah, hopefully not by Drake. (laughs) (laughs) And now for the week's news. Premier Dan Andrews and New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet have joined forces to open 25 bulk bill urgent care clinics in each state. Andrews says a decline in GP bulk billing has forced those who cannot afford the fees to go directly to hospital emergency departments, which are already at capacity. He says that this move is a sign of a new era of political cooperation that goes across state and party lines. The clinics will be opened close to hospitals in both states. More than 30 deaths in the past two years have been linked to delays in Victoria's emergency call service, according to a report released earlier this week. The report, conducted by the Inspector General for Emergency Management, investigated the ESTA's handling of emergency cases during the pandemic and identified that 40 seriously ill or life-threatening cases were hampered by delays and long wait times. It found that the ESTA had inadequate call takers and too many people calling for non-emergency situations. It also said that there was no fault with the call takers. They were also suffering due to a shortage of staff. Inspector General Tony Pearce says he can't conclude whether the delays caused deaths, but that the system was not able to cope with the demands of the pandemic. He has requested a revision of the services funding model. The last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, passed away earlier in the week, with his funeral held on Sunday. The former president is often credited with bringing an end to the Cold War and the disbandment of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev's policies of transparency and economic restructuring helped modernise Central and Eastern Europe, but were ultimately the reason for his demise. His lack of intervention with communist allied countries in Europe also led to the end of communism in the continent, including East Germany with the fall of the Berlin Wall. His final act before his resignation was to dissolve the Soviet Union. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Russian President Vladimir Putin, who famously clashed with Gorbachev, did not attend the funeral. And Serena Williams has lost what may be the last match of her career against Ozzy Ayla Tomlanovich in the US Open. She didn't give up easily. It was a three-hour gruel with the final score at 7-5, 6-7 and 6-1. Ayla Tomlanovich has even apologized for winning. I just thank everyone that's here that's been on my side so many years, decades, oh my gosh, literally decades. Um, But it all started with my parents and they deserve everything. So I'm really grateful for them. Today's episode of The Wind Down was hosted and written by myself, Aditi Kuti and Ayana Osman. It was also edited and produced by me. Album artwork is by Emily Lee. You can find us on Instagram at Swinburne Journalism or The Wind Down Swinburne, Twitter at Swin Journalism, or on our website, theswinstandard.net.